Ken Krugler is most recently a consultant and a significant member of the Apache Pinot community, the Apache Flink community, a fixture in the data space for a long time. He's got a fascinating background before that, which we talk about a little bit on the podcast. I have him on the show today to get his thoughts on open source. A lot of real-time analytics technologies are open source, so this is an important thing for this community to think about. He's a guy with a wealth of knowledge on the subject. This is a little bit of a longer conversation for this podcast, so plan accordingly, but he's got a lot of great things to say. I just had a great time talking to him. So listen in on this episode of the Real-Time Analytics Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Real-Time Analytics Podcast. I am your host, Tim Berglund, and I am joined in the virtual studio today by Ken Krugler. Ken is uh, a number of things, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let I'm gonna let him tell us what those things are. Wow! Ken, welcome to the show. Okay, let's see. Uh, I was gonna I'm, start to say like a person involved in the Pinot community and a Flink expert, and I, I but I'm like no, I just I, Ken. Okay. Well, one of the things is is as of a week ago, I'm retired, but but really? my but my definition of retirement. Is, is not the same as most people's. It means okay. I only work on fun things. That's This is the face of envy that okay. we're looking at right now. I it's, hope not, not in a bad way. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, you know, no more payroll or workers' comp or, you know, that stuff. But I still, I might work for consulting wages if it's interesting. Sure. Yeah. If it's fun, yeah. that's the thing. They got to make it fun now. Yep. It's so great. It's so freeing. It's like, tell me, tell me why I should work on your project. How fun is it? Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, Am I going to have a good time? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's one thing about me. Um, I mean, it's, I feel like I've earned this. You know, I, I started off at Apple in 83 working on the Lisa and then the Macintosh computer. Uh, you know, I did not know either one of those things. What, what was your role on those? Uh, you know, the Lisa computer, it's like, you know, the new kid, what do you, what do they do? They write the installer. They, um, you know, <laughs> um, the Mac, I was, I was the, I was the Jackie Robinson. They were merging the two groups and they were trying to show that they could, because there's a lot of animosity between them in those days, you know, intentionally in a way, um, sure, jobs kind of fan those that, flames. That Yep. Yeah. But uh, they're like, well, we need somebody to come over and prove that you could go from the lease group to the Mac group. And I was the young guy. So they're like, okay, let's, let's have Ken do it. Um, wow. So, yeah. So it was an interesting time at Apple. Um, oh, yeah. And I, you know, then I, I moved to Japan and I worked on the Japanese Macintosh and I got into this whole international space for a number of years. Um, you know, Korean, Chinese, Thai, Tibetan, Arabic, I called it the revenge of my German teacher in high school because I hated German. And I told him it was a worthless subject. You know, everybody speaks English. And and there I was knee deep in like, you know, the Arabic lunar calendar. Like, how do you how do you do that? Um, so uh, so I did that for a couple of years and then I started a consulting company. And uh, first was all about the same kind of thing. Internationalization, uh, you know, companies would hire us to look at their code and modify it so it'd work with all these interesting non-Latin based writing systems. Right. Um, right. Yeah. was a big transition. There's many. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then I took a break. We were in Hong Kong and I started getting involved with the Palm Pilot uh, back in the day and wound up 
doing their internationalization for Japanese and Chinese and Korean. And uh, okay, see, I only know you as a data guy. I don't know yeah. any of this. this yeah, this it was, it was, it was, well, it was a weird transition because in 2004, I took another break and I was like, God, search is really useful for programmers. I wonder if you were going to mm -hmm. build a search engine for programmers, what that would look like. Um, and so that was my startup, Krugel. It was like we, we indexed all of the open source code in the world, like several billion lines of source code at the time. Sourceforge, Sourceforge at that time. Yeah, Sourceforge and, you know, Eclipse Foundation and, you know, Apache. Those were, those were the big heavy hitters. Um, and that's what got me into big data because before that, you know, like working on the Palm Pilot, it was like, you know, every byte matters, every cycle you got to count, every pixel is precious. And suddenly it's like, well, we're going to yeah. spin More up. More like, like firmware development. Yeah, it time. was super yeah. low level. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly it's like, well, let's just spin up 20 or 30 fire breathing servers and, you know, unleash them. It was an interesting, it felt like I had the hammer of Thor's hammer. Like, like suddenly, you know, I'm just looking for a problem to hit with this big data yeah. processing technology. Right. Um, and we were using Nudge. That was my big experience, exposure to open source. We were using um, this web crawling software called Nudge and this okay. search engine called Lucene. I was going to say, Nutch was precursor to Lucene or co-evolved? After. Co after. So, yeah, Doug, okay. Cutting, okay. Doug Cutting did Lucene first. And then he's like, we need to create a people's search engine because like having these big companies in charge of search sucks. So okay. Was he currently working for Yahoo? <laughs> no, he wasn't. Um, it's okay. funny that he did wind up working for Yahoo, but yeah. he was like, let's create our own search engine. I mean, how hard can it yeah. be? So he, he created this Nutch open source project. And then they're like, you know, we're having some scaling issues. And Google wrote this paper on the Google file system and this thing called MapReduce. So let's let's create this thing called Hadoop that was part of Nutch. So like I was one of the first Hadoop users because uh, it was coming out of the Nutch project and we were using it to process all this source code. Uh, and uh, and we're using Lucene. And then there was this new project called Solar that CNET had just open sourced January 2006. So we started using right. Solar. Um and, uh, and we were heavy users of this project called Tika, which is for extracting text content and metadata from files. So it's an Apache okay. project. Okay. Um, and that eventually I became a committer on that project. And then I got voted in as, a, as an Apache Software Foundation member. And that cool. sort of is how I got more and more into the open source space and the big data space. Um, yeah. Sadly, most of our big customers for Krugel were banking industry customers. And so the 2008 financial crisis was not good timing when you're trying to raise no, money. Okay. I was going to say, why is that sad? But, but that yeah. was timing wise, very timing wise, timing. very bad. And, and uh, so one of our funders was a bank and they got nervous and they called their loan. And so we had to sell and that was kind of the end of Krugel for me. But then I started a consulting company, uh, scale unlimited. And uh, that's since then consulting on big data projects. So took you across the finish line in the sense that yeah. a, a week, a, I, I, I just feel, I didn't know this podcast episode. I, I'm, I'm going to think of it as a celebratory. Yes. Ken's retirement podcast. It, it, and thank you. And so you, you get to talk about whatever you want <laughs> okay. on this episode. And so, well, th and, and thanks. Th I always like to know how people got to where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, that's a great, that's a great story. And especially this, this week, it's worth okay. um, so know, marking all those things. But I'm trying to remember where we first connected because it was like 2000, 
10 or 11. It was something around training or... Even Cassandra, maybe? Yeah, so I was doing a lot of work for Datastax um, at the time. So it was I, so it must have been that. Okay. Not a lot, but I was like doing some webinars, kind of short form training that that were somewhere in between online training and webinar. Right. Um, Right. And um, that was, yeah, I later went to work for them. A right. few years after that, right, with a little GitHub stint in the middle there. So nice. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I love teaching. So that's one of the things I'm still doing in retirement is I'm teaching classes on Flink for Viverica. Um, okay. It's always yeah, teaching teaching professional education classes is. I mean, I also teach like kids how to program. I've done that for a number of years. That, um, by the way, and I, you know, I don't know if anybody else among our listeners right now is interested in this part of the conversation. I hope you are, and I hope you stick with us, but that right there, that's my retirement gig. That just, I can't, okay. I, I can't wait to get there. Um, it's, and you know, yeah, it's I'm super fun making <laughs> training videos. Why not make them for kids? Right? right. Not that it hasn't been done, but yeah, I would like to do it better. Okay. <sighs> Um, by then my grandchildren will be grandchildren will be old enough to, you know, maybe those who are interested start. <laughs> well, it is kind of funny because I started teaching right around when my daughter was in middle school and I started doing enrichment classes, local middle school, and she had very little interest in programming, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, sadly. Um, but, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's doing her own thing, which is great. And, uh, it got me into, you know, doing this volunteer teaching thing. Um, neither, neither of my daughters had any interest in programming at all. My son had some, and when he was 12, the kids were homeschooled. We did this homeschool enrichment science fair project that was really an engineering project. There was no science to it, but do what I want. I mean, it was more educational this way. And there was some hardware design. There was some C code. It was integrating a (laughs) Wii remote with this hovercraft. This is great. Right. And and after that, he's like, yeah, you know, I think I want to focus on, on trumpet and music. And, uh, (laughs) well, Hello, Zach. He's a web developer now. Okay. And, you know, when I need help with Next.js and CSS and things, he's my guy. So perfect. Anyway, let's talk about um, you're an Apache, Soft, Apache Soft, Software Foundation member, a lot right. of involvement in open source. I mean, you've got thoughts. I'd kind of like to pick your brain. And, you know, this is the Real Time Analytics podcast. It's not the Tim and Ken Talk About Life podcast. But I actually kind of like that. It is, however, very true that. Almost every important technology involved in, you know, proximity to real-time analytics is an open source technology. Not right. all of them, but most of them. So this is worth some reflection. What are, as somebody who's been a part of the space since the term was a term? Um, okay. Well, I gave a short talk about this at like, it's like one of those, I don't know, five minutes to explain open source or whatever at some big tech conference. Um, but uh, I talked about in five minutes, I was, I had a lot of caffeine. I was talking really fast, but, um, I talked about three different things. And one was, uh, picking the right open source project, right? Because one of the beauties of open source is there's lots of options. Like mm-hmm. even inside of the Apache software foundation, there are multiple projects, both like actually real projects and in incubator that are all kind of about the same thing. And the, the philosophy is really like, well, let the best project win. Uh, and so you have lots of choices. I mean, back in the day, it was like, well, do we do Cassandra or HBase? Like that, that was a very common question. I remember that. I 
Interestingly, also remember the, do we do Cassandra or MongoDB question? Like right. I literally got that question a lot, which to me betrayed, uh, <laughs> I, say in the kindest way, an, an ignorance of what those things are. Exactly. But yes. You have so, options. So how do you pick the right project? You know, and let's say you've done the level. I mean, the, the way I assess projects for myself was different than I, the way I'd assess them for my clients. Like for okay. me, when I'm looking at projects, I'm like, which ones do I think are just now getting to the point of being interesting? Like they're the things that in two or three years are going to be significant. And I want to get started with them now because if they get hot, then we're in a good position to provide consulting for them. Yes. And, and you've got two or three years of experience. Exactly. There are, you know, 10 people on the planet who know them as well as you do because, and that's right. wise for, yeah. Right. right. So, so I'm looking at, at when I'm assessing those projects, it's, um, you know, it, it, it still is about the community and I'll talk about that, like why the community is so important. Um, but it's also about sort of where that project's goals are versus where I think the industry in whole is moving. And are they going to like match up? <laughs> like there are projects that are too soon. You know, and uh, like what they're trying to do isn't going to whatever the, the I don't think there's going to be a lot of companies with money to spend on consulting projects wanting what they're doing in two or three years ahead of the market ahead of the market. In terms right. Of your right. Two or three year right. gap. They're right. still several years ahead of the market. And right. It's not going to be any fun. Okay. Right. So it's sort of like trajectories. Are they like lining up? You know, that's one yeah. of the, one yeah. of the things. For clients, on the other hand, on the you know, and it's totally okay if it's the zero point two release, you know, of the thing, you know, it's coming out of incubator. Usually, I, I, I try and hit them when they're coming out of the incubator at the Apache Software Foundation or that phase okay. in other projects uh, in other okay. organizations. Right. That was that was Pino, uh, yeah. a year and a half ago. Year and a half ago, right? It was Flink like five years ago or six years ago. Um, so, but for clients, they don't want the zero point two. They don't want to base their business on the 0.2 release in general, right? right. So right. we're looking for more mature projects um, and also ones where there's more know-how out there because my dream project is proof of concept. Great. Let's actually build something out and hand it off. And now they'll need to be able to find, you know, people to work on it that they can employ, et cetera. You know, so... That's so, a lot of ecosystem at that point when, right. when you can hire people who know the thing. That's right. in terms of this discussion, right. a great deal of maturity. Right. I mean, at least a couple years, right? They've been at conferences. There's training available. Like those are sort of some of the mm -hmm. signs that it's far enough along, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for that reason, I've, I've sort of stayed away from projects that use, I mean, I know I'm going to get some hate for this, but use funky languages, Right. Like like a project written in, you know, Erlang. OK, that might be the best language to write this thing in. But the odds of finding developers who know that language and the technology and are there to support it are very low. And I don't want to mm -hmm. like level up for some language that I've used playfully a few times, you know. Um, exactly. And it's, it's not that that choice wasn't itself the platonically perfect choice and it's the best language, et cetera. It's just that there's only a few of the cognoscenti who know enough yeah. to be there. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so, actually, you know, maybe it wasn't a good choice of language, but, <laughs> but that's a different podcast. I mean, right. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why I was a little bit nervous about Flink and its use of Scala. Because I looked at Scala and I'm like, mm -hmm. is it really going to? And it felt like it was. I'm like, oh, maybe I made a mistake. And now I look at open source projects and they're 
trying to remove Scala dependencies yes. from their code. Yes, that so is, that is a more typical move at this point. Yeah. So anyway, so there's this, you know, picking the project. Um, one of the key things you do not want to do when picking the project, and I'm talking about this for as a for a client, um, is there's a lot of benchmarking that goes on out there where somebody has a benchmark that proves just how much better option A is than option B or C. Um, and there's a whole bunch of issues around benchmarking, you know, because almost everybody doing the benchmarking has a bias, right? It's especially bad when they're like the primary supporter for the project. Right. Um, right. so Anyway, Mark, Mark Twain, I've said this before, but Mark Twain wrote about benchmarks. He said, you know, in the, the hierarchy of truth telling, you've got liars, <laughs> damned liars, statistics, and actually benchmarks are benchmarks. Are even, right. Yes. It's not, it's not that any vendor lies. I mean, I'd be shocked yeah. if somebody actually just freaking made up numbers, right? That, right. that would be audacious. It's just right. that you, you, you run a test, you take measurements and, uh, is there an agenda? Yes. I mean, I work for a database vendor. Right. I'm sure the time is going to come when we're going to write a blog post that's got benchmarks in it. We're going to want Pinot to seem fast and, and Star Trek cloud to seem fast and whatever. Right. Uh, the, the key point is that that test is devoid of real world context. Right. right. So to me, it's interesting to say like, uh, Oh, you know, Cisco did a bake off between, some Ash. real-time analytics database. Right. What did you do? Because right. that's a real system. You don't give a crap which one's passed. You right. care how your system works. And I so, wish more companies published the results of a good internal bake-off because that is yeah. gold. That is that yeah. is like so rare and so useful. <laughs> Link um, in the show notes, but, uh, but go on. <laughs> anyway, um, and the other thing is uh, that I tell people about benchmarks is it's rare, there's two things. One is it's rare that the success or failure of your project is going to be predicated primarily based on how fast you can like push records through your system. Like that's uh -huh. typically not going to be the thing. Um, and it's really hard to do a benchmark that covers your specific use case, right? Because you're, what you're doing, you know, you have really wide rows versus, you know, tables that have just a few, like every... It's so specialized that it's very hard to generalize from what is a general benchmark to your specific use case. Right. And so I say, don't, don't start there. Sure. You can read them. They're, they're entertaining often, especially when you have comments on them and you have people like, you know, you start seeing the, 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 the it starts off pleasant discussion and it can devolve quickly, but, um, yeah. But uh, don't start there. Start. So where I start with is um, typically I look for who's writing about it. So I look for non-vendor people writing about te the technology. What do they say? Yeah. And do I respect them? Are they somebody I know or based on other things they've written? Does it seem like they have a good point of view? Um, I look at uh, the community. So let's look at the mailing list. Let's look at what's going on on the Slack channel. Because that, those are the things you look for, mailing list, Slack channel, like what, I, go well, into as much detail there as you can. I'm super interested. Yeah, well, so there's a couple things there. One is, I mean, there's clearly like level of activity. Like you can look back, for example, for Apache software projects at how many 
emails have there been on both the user list and the dev list for a project over time? And you can see how's it trending. And I mean, if you're talking about a mature technology, you kind of want it to be trending down. Like, you know, right. you don't want to have a whole bunch of people saying, hey, what the heck is, you know. Um, Things can be done uh, right. to some degree, right? Right. Uh, at some point, it's let's call it good. Um, but it is an interesting, you know, especially for a lot of these projects, they're evolving quickly. So that gives you a sense of how it's trending in the community. Um, but there's an even more important aspect to it, which is kind of the tone. Um, whether it's a community that's going to be helpful and welcoming, because if you are engaging, if you're using open source, you have to assume that you are going to be actively engaged with it, that you are going to be asking questions and maybe finding problems and having to come up with workarounds and maybe even doing pull requests to fix things or to improve things. Like you are going to be engaged with community if it's a successful project. So, and what's it going to be like? So you're dating, right? So what's it? Yeah. So like, what's the, you know, what's the vibe here? And, um, I mean, there are, there are some open source projects that I have been involved with that I have backed off from, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll push the Apache software foundation is the one I know, yeah. but, I, but I, that's one of the reasons why you need an organization that is acting as kind of the oversight committee, if you will, of all these open source projects, where when there are problems, there's someplace outside of the project itself you can go to to try and help resolve it, right? When when things inside the project are just not working out, you can raise it up a level. And so uh, talk, talk to us about that. We're, um, uh, I mean, I work in the Pinot community. Pinot is an ASF project. Mm -hmm. You've got deeper roots in the foundation than I do for sure. So that level of governance, mm -hmm. um, probably shouldn't assume that all our listeners even know the project governance models. So mm -hmm. If you want to give a quick summary of that, but then what is the escalation pathway and kind of sell us on the ASF? You know, give us, give us <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the best person to sell you on ASF because there are people who, you know, have served on the board and who have, you know, been, like these PMCs, uh, which are sort of like the project managers um, yes. uh, for projects, uh, and I have not. Um, you know, there have been release managers for projects. I have not. Like there's all kinds of levels of involvement. I've given talks at Apache events, but there are people who are really ASF ambassadors, right, who are out yeah. there actively doing, spreading the good news, and that's not me. Um, I can tell you how I've seen it work in projects. You know, there's, you know, there is, it, it is kind of a meritocracy. It's, it, they try to make it a meritocracy. Like you earn, you, you, like you earn karma sort of by contributing things. And if you contribute enough and show a willingness to work within the sort of environment of the project and the framework, um, then at some point you can be invited to be a committer on a project which gives the ability to like review other people's changes and to create your own sort of commits that get accepted. Basically you can, you can push to push commits to the repo, push commits to the repo. Right. And you don't, yeah. and most people aren't uh, Apache software foundation members who are doing that. You don't have to be a member to be right. committing to a project and you don't have to technically be a committer on a project to be a member of the Apache software foundation. Though typically that's the path people follow. Um, and then you know, you can become somebody who's sort of acting as the chair of the project, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And you have responsibilities like writing regular release reports that are submitted to the board. Um, you know, you sort of, uh, it, uh, board of the foundation of the foundation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the board can wow. reject the report if there's not enough. Yeah. I'd, I'd hate to be a part of the committee that reviews the minutes. That's yeah. That's <laughs> hats off to that group. Hats off to that right, group. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you can you have other involvements. Like there are people who act as mentors for projects that are in the incubator. The process of becoming an Apache Software Foundation project is first you're in the incubator, which is sort of like, let's see how what kind of legs this project has. Does it have involvement from people other than everybody at one company? Right? Is there a diversity of the community? So it's not just a company's project. Um, are they making regular progress? Have they done all of the like legal stuff of making sure all the code can be under the Apache Software Foundation license, right? Everybody who's committed code has a con- contributor license they've signed. You know, there's all these steps. Is the name okay to use, the name they want to use? Like, are there trademark issues? There's all this sure. nuts some and bolts stuff. Pepsi or something. Yeah, again, so at some point, you know, you graduate from the incubator if you've passed, you know, all of the tests, essentially, and then you become a regular project. And you can also become a project sort of spinning out of another project, just like Hadoop sort of spun out of Nutch, uh, you know? Then Hadoop gave birth to many. Many projects, children. right. Yes. Um, um, so yes, there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a so if there's a, if there's a problem, so there's a committer and then there's the, the project management committee, which is a subset of the committers and they vote on releases, big changes. What are they? So if you're a committer, you get to vote on releases. You, okay, all committers vote on releases. All committers vote on releases. There's no, like, the PMC doesn't have, like, a special extra, you know, this special plus one vote. Um, in that sense, they're just like anybody else. They have mostly admin, extra admin responsibility. Um, okay. Tries to be very flat, in a way, hierarchy. Uh, certainly, certainly. Um, and um, flat and meritocratic, meritocratic. Yeah. And if there is conflict in the project, you said there is a way to escalate right. to the foundation. Right. Okay. Yeah. That is helpful. That is yeah. helpful. And, you know, is it, I mean, you, you know, in general, it's like, try and, you know, can you just work it out amongst yourselves on the playground? Like, you know, let's not get the, you know, does the teacher really need to get involved? But, um, you know, sometimes things don't get worked out. Like, you know, somebody who's a committer does a commit and somebody undoes the commit. <laughs> and that's, 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 that's usually like shots fired. Like that is, yeah, you know, that's, that's passive aggressive. Yeah, that's uh, that that's I've seen that a couple times where that that's aggressive aggressive. <laughs> yeah, that's. That <laughs> um, means things are not good. That wasn't the first thing that happened. That's just the sign that things are really bad. Um, yeah. So, so circling back to how do you assess an open source community? The fact that everything's fairly transparent, like should be on the mailing list or in Slack. Um, means you can get a pretty good feel of what the community is like. You can also look at, you know, the issue tracking system, whether it's Jira or the using GitHub or whatever. You can look at, you know, what kind of issues are getting filed? Are people responding to the issues, right? Like when somebody asks a question on the mailing list, does it get an answer? Or when they ask a question on Slack, does it get an answer, right? So that's useful stuff if you're trying to figure out, am I going to be able to work well with this project? Um, And that's, and that's, there's kind of two communities there. There's community of developers, the committers and, and yep. those people. And then there's the broader community of users. Right. And, and you want to see vibrance and um, I will, I'll just say kindness in both places <laughs> and collaboration. 
Yes. Help, help, yeah. you know, helpfulness. Um, yeah. so, uh, you know, I think, um, there are other things you can do that are more like more objective because that's all pretty subjective. Mm-hmm. Like you can look at like with GitHub, a lot of everything's in GitHub just about that I work with. So, you know, go get the pulse of the project. Like what's the rate at which things are being contributed over time? Like it gives you that graph, which is very useful. Um, and <laughs> you can assess the bus factor. Like, is it one person doing 90% of the commits? Okay. You know, um, that, that could be a, of concern. Um, if, if you're really all in on this particular technology, in some cases, it doesn't matter as much. There's like a bunch of different, I don't know, JSON parsing libraries. So like, you know, somebody. It's always the example I use of little throwaway component, right? right. Like that's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, yeah, if there was one person who was contributing 90% of the code on Flink, that would that would be bad. Even if they're brilliant, mm-hmm. even if they're the most amazing coder ever, mm, you know. Uh, that, that, their life is but a vapor. Right, uh, yes. So, so um, yeah. all right, so there's, you know, so those are some of the things. That, obviously, there's, there's other stuff like what license does the project use and is that going to be acceptable? I mean, almost everything I deal with is Apache license now, very... Very few things are like, I don't know, LGPL or, you know, whatever, some of these weird. Yeah. Um, so the, um, what I'm hearing, this is super affirming what I'm mm-hmm. hearing, and maybe I'm just putting it through my own filter, but you're, what I hear you saying is the health of the community and health, you've, you've broken that down in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. is a key contributor to your, your technology adoption rubric. Right. To is this going to be a successful outcome here? Um, Final question. Um, We're we are running long for this podcast, but um, (laughs) wait. I'm just I'm finishing up on finishing up on point one of three. I I know. (laughs) I'd have to do this more. As long as it's fun. Otherwise, you don't have to do it, right? So, but I um, on the we were talking about the Apache model, and Mm -hmm. you're you're in a place in life where you can name names. And so I'm going to put my own self on the table there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's a, a tension in the Apache model where the Apache way where, uh, you know, you for prudent software engineering management reasons, don't want the bus factor to be one. Um, the values of the ASF don't want one company to be controlling a project. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're coming to the ASF with, you know, one company has made this and Hey, let's make it an Apache project, like, eh, you know, but then this other thing happens. And th- so just in terms of my own, this isn't really about me, but mm-hmm. my own employment history, mm-hmm. my last three companies have been based on Apache projects right? mm-hmm. and there have been some successes and some not successes in right. those companies relationships with the ASF. Mm-hmm. So a thing happens when a project is successful that, um, the company hires engineers who work on the project and they pay them money mm-hmm. to, to work on the open source project. And then that suddenly becomes the cool place to be where all your friends who are committers and your other collaborators and all the smart people who know this stuff and work on it. And that kind of, there's a certain center of gravity. It pulls more committers yep. in. That's natural because people get to make free choices about where they work. And we all think that's great. But then you but, get, yeah, then then so it seems like success creates this contradiction in the model. Um, Your thoughts? So yes, 
And there's another factor there as well, because for people who aren't employed by somebody whose business is built around the open source project, they don't get to spend 100% of their time working on the project. The project is a means to an end, right? Yeah. They, you know, it's like we are doing this thing inside our company X and we're using this open source project Y. So yes, you can spend time working on it uh, to further X, <laughs> but yeah. it's not like that's their 100% deal. And that makes a difference, yeah. especially- it could, it could be if it's a strategic investment. Right, right, but, but for, be. yeah, but it's less it. common. Typically, it's a couple people in a company, um, and and it is less common across a lot of companies. You see a lot of contributions. If you look at the contributions there, you'll see a lot of ones and twos. Like I've, I've had a couple contributions to Pinot, and those were because a client had something that needed to be done with Pinot, and so you know, open source for the win. Like here's a patch, and it got accepted, and great. Um, but they're not paying me to further. Pinot. They are paying me to solve a problem that uses Pinot. Right. And that right. is fundamentally different then in terms of how much time I can spend on it, where my focus is, right? And so it's not just that a project is successful or not. It's that um, it's, it, it's really, if it's successful, the company that's backing an open source project has the resources to hire more people who are full-time on it. Yes, and that then does create an imbalance. And it's almost like, and no, I don't wish this at all for StarTree, but when a company goes through problems, a company that is backing an open source project, and I've seen this a couple of times, there's almost like creative destruction. When people leave that company and go to other startups or start doing other things that still involve that same open source technology, now you get like, you can actually get a, a blossoming effect, uh, you know, it, it, ah, so vendor built around open source project implodes a little bit, so much right. Engineering, right. We'll just say, yep. and now there are other places and the job they're going to get is with that technology because they're right. the best in the world at it and yep. they want to do. And so now you've got this more diverse. Community. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's in the, in the case of the project and the company being successful. Um, and that, that center of gravity existing, um, I, I would say that's, I mean, name names in a positive way. I would say that's confluent, right. With Kafka. Yep. Um, totally. And, uh, that's actually, if you look at the distribution of, of committers and work mm -hmm. and everything, StarTree and Pino and Uber and LinkedIn, and there's, there's actually a pretty diverse community. So it's mm -hmm. not a thing right now, but it could be, it could and be. you don't want to do that in a way that is unfaithful to the values of right. the ASF. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up Kafka because that is a good example. Um, with Kafka, there is a thing of what's the schema that you're using for serializing and deserializing records. Mm -hmm. And, how, and do you, how do you manage that? Well, how would you manage that? And if you go looking for that, um, all you find is Confluence schema registry. And that's the correct. code that you can drop in easily that's baked into a lot of open source projects is built on the Confluence schema registry. And if you that's don't correct. want to use the Confluence schema registry, it actually winds up being non-trivial. It's not immediately obvious. How do I, for example, with a Flink workflow, like deal with my own schema without using the Confluence schema registry? And there's a reason for that because 
you know, Confluent has developers that like contribute stuff. And uh, so it's there in all these open source projects. And that's a win for them. I understand why they do that. But it does mean that everybody who's working with Kafka in other projects has friction that wouldn't be there otherwise because of the economic sort of goals of friction if they don't want to use the Confluent Schema Registry. Right. If they, yeah. Okay. So. Okay. I don't know. That's like a low point to end on. I don't want to end on the low point. Okay. I don't want to end on a low point, but uh, it's, it's, the, it's an important the, thing. It's an important thing. And yeah. it's an important thing that, uh, like I, I don't mind discussing in the open because this has right. a lot to do with what I do in development right. relations at a company whose cloud <laughs> service is based on an Apache project, right? right? That's my job. Right. Um, and, um, there's, there's a trajectory in which, uh, that, that, it, it becomes more interesting as a committer to work for that company. Right. And you don't want then to, uh, you want to steward that mass very carefully, that right. mass of, of committers and, and intellectual capital very carefully in a way that doesn't betray the principles of the place where the project came right. from and, and right. but, positive community membership going forward. I mean, back in the day with Hadoop, when Hadoop was getting big, it was because Yahoo adopted it because they're like getting crushed by Google and they don't have their own big data processing platform. So they adopted Hadoop and they put the resources behind it that was necessary for Hadoop to be able to scale up to thousands of computers without Yahoo, who's got the resources to like, yeah, let's spin up a test cluster with, you know, a thousand servers. But they have a dedicated ops team, right? So they cared like not that much about the quality of Hadoop error messages. And so for years, that was a sore spot with Hadoop where, because it didn't matter to Yahoo and that's not them, whatever, being nefarious or anything. It was just, you're scratching the itch. Create that, vendor lock-in or. No, you know, no. I mean, it was just. The open source version. It's nothing nefarious. No, they just, just cared less about it. And, and so. It emerges from their constraints and their incentives. Right. And so it's interesting, like, you know. It's, it's sort of like evolution, like, okay, why did this animal evolve this way? It's because of the environment around it. There's a lot of context there, and you'll see that with open source projects. So I am interested in seeing what happens with Pinot, with the context in, in, in which it's evolving. Um, yeah. My guest today has been Ken Krugler. Ken, thanks for being part of the Real-Time Analytics Podcast. Thanks for having me. That was fun. And there you have it. If you feel compelled to help us spread the word and grow the Real-Time Analytics community, you can give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you're watching us on YouTube, hey, subscribe and of course, hit that notification bell. And you can always share your favorite episodes on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever it is you do social media. Thanks, and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode.